Uh, children are dismissed at this time. If you want to go ahead and have them head on back, uh, go ahead and head out this time. Good morning again. My name is Carrie Broyles, I'm executive pastor here at LCF. Uh, again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, this week, our ministry spotlight is on some of our local partners. Now, this is not an all-inclusive list, but three of the partners that we work with and support as a congregation, um, through your giving and through your volunteering, um, we're able to bless uh, many people here in our community and in the Northland. Um, a couple of those ministries, one, the first one is Snack Back Pro snack back pack program um you think i'd know that after working in a in a school for 25 years um that program allows us to provide meals for um the children at alexander donovan that are less fortunate that maybe otherwise might be more hungry over the weekend so um, we have volunteers that put together snack packs so to speak that they can take home every friday and it just gives them a little something extra. It's such a great ministry. If you want to give to that, uh, the best way we can do that is um, just monetary donations towards that uh, because they know exactly what to buy and what the kids are going to eat and what, what will have a better shelf life. Um, another one of those is Caden's Closet. Uh, Caden's Closet opened up in end of January. Um, it is a ministry that um, is across four states right now. We're the most recent addition. Uh, there's 11 sites um, across a four-state area, and that is an opportunity to bless not only newly adopting families, but also uh, foster care families. Uh, many times at a minute's notice, um, they get a call and say, we'll be there in three hours, and they have to have a place to go to get clothing, maybe a crib or other necessary items, and Caden's Closet provides that. And we have one of those on site at our pastoral care center just to the south here, which is the house on our property. Um, and my understanding is in the first month, um, they had 30 visits, which is a huge blessing. Um, so thank you for that. But be looking in our announcements and emails for ways that you can serve Caden's Closet. A lot of time it's just giving uh, babies clothes and things like that. And the other is this bag I have in hand. Many of you have seen this. Some have never seen it because they're gone all the time. Um, we have an opportunity to uh, bless In As Much Ministry, which is a local food pantry uh, here in Liberty. And simply grab a bag, fill it up, and bring it back during the week, drop it off in the office, or bring it on Sunday and just set it outside the doors, outside here across from the Kids Point check-in area. If there's no bags, just fill a grocery bag. That's fine. Uh, but it does bless uh, the Northland. I know that they've been around for, uh, oh, wow, 2008 at least up here, but they've been around much longer than that. So um, please continue to do that. So would you pray with me over these ministries? And Father God, we come before you this morning, and we want to say, blessed are you, Lord God. Um, for charitable organizations that want to give to the least of these. Um, blessed are you, Lord, for the people in this congregation that have given of their time or their talent or their treasure to support these ministries. Blessed are you, Lord, for the moms that chose life for their children 
that may end up in the foster care system or an adoption through an adoption agency that could be adopted and given life. Blessed are you, Lord, for this church which supports these local ministries uh, solely because we want to glorify you, Lord, and serve um, your little ones. Blessed are you, Lord, for the prayers that are prayed over um, our community in the Northland uh, for those in need. Blessed are you, Lord, for the volunteers that work tirelessly to um, give people a leg up or an opportunity to have a little better life on this earth. And most importantly, Lord, blessed are you for those that bring the gospel to the nations. Um, and Jesus said, uh, blessed are you for those of you that um, give to the least of these or whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you've done to me. So we thank you, Father God, for that opportunity to serve you. And may in all things you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Carrie. <clears throat> if if you're gonna if you're someone who's gonna hand out our communion elements, we come grab these now and let's start that process uh, right away. Um, if you're visiting with us today, uh, we invite anyone who has been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to take communion here. And so, um, if that's you, grab these elements. It's a little two stack of cups. If you need a gluten free wafer there in the middle, but the, the double stack has a wafer in the second cup. You can grab those. Just set them down by your chair or something, where a place where you, you're going to remember where it is and not kick it. And then later in the service, we'll get to those. Um, as that's being passed out, you can open up in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We're working our way uh, through a series in Genesis, and uh, we're right sort of in the middle of Genesis chapter 3 and sin entering into the world. And so we're going to continue that this morning. So if you want to open up, get situated there. Uh, we're going to be specifically in verses 8 through 13, but we'll actually read 1 through 13 here in a moment. I had a, a nice uh, spring illustration all dialed up because the weather was so amazing over the course of the week. And now it's cloudy and cold and, and rainy. Um, and so just use your imagination here. Sound good? One of the things that is, is a joy at this time of year is that in this part of the, the world, we spend months and it's kind of cloudy, it's, everything's kind of gray or brown and dead and there are no leaves on the trees. And then we get to this time of year and we're celebrating Jesus' resurrection and Easter while we're also watching our physical environment like come back to life. Everything is turning green again, flowers are sprouting, trees are, are budding and those types of things. And it seems like before our eyes, what was dead springs back to life. Now, the reality is that all winter long, roots underground in those plants and trees and whatnot have been alive the entire time. They just bear fruit uh, at this time of year and everything turns green, uh, everything comes back to life. It was alive, had the appearance of death, then it springs back to life before our eyes. One of the joys of spring is that we just get to watch that unfold in front of us. In Genesis chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see roots that have continued to bear fruit all throughout 
uh, human history. We're going to see roots of sin that continue to bear fruit today. We're going to see roots of grace that continue to bear fruit today. Sort of the tagline for this series has been past, present, forever. What you have here in Genesis chapter 3 is the origin of sin in humanity in the past that still bears fruit today. Now, it will not last forever because Jesus is going to come back. But what you also have in Genesis chapter 3 are some of the earliest pictures of God's grace in the past that still bear fruit in the present and will bear fruit forever. And so we're going to walk our way through that over the course of the morning. We're actually going to take two spins through the passage, if you will. Once to see the roots of sin and talk about how those still bear fruit today, and once to see the roots of grace and how those bear fruit today. So if you've got Genesis chapter 3 open there in front of you, like I said, we're going to focus on verses 8 through 13, but I'm going to read starting in verse 1 just so we have the whole thing in mind. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you would reveal yourself and your grace and your goodness to us. God, by the power of your spirit present here among us, would you open our hearts and our eyes to see the reality and the depth of our sin? God, would you open our hearts and eyes and minds to see the reality of and the depth of your grace? God, would you move our hearts toward repentance? Would you move our hearts toward obedience? God, would you move hearts toward seeing the wonder of the gospel for the very first time? God, would you do this through the power of your spirit, working in the midst of your word, for your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's where we're going to land this morning. The roots of sin and grace in the Garden of Eden provide a pattern for both humanity's action and God's redemption throughout history. The roots of sin and grace in the Garden of Eden 
provide a pattern for both humanity's action and God's redemption throughout human history. I want to get a little bit of a rolling start here, and the reason for that is because there was a little piece last week, if you were with us for Easter or you listened online, there was, there was a small piece in the sermon last week that there wasn't time to give like full-bodied explanation to that's worth going back and picking up and then rolling that forward into the rest of this morning's passage. And so verse 6 says, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Root number one about sin is that sin overpromises and underdelivers. The promise from the serpent was, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One of those things is true, and one of those things is brutally false. Adam and Eve eat the fruit, their eyes are opened, and yet they are not like God. They realize that they're naked, they sew fig leaves together in order to cover themselves. That is the continual pattern of temptation and sin throughout history. Big promise, little payoff, bigger consequence. That's the way sin and temptation works. It's a little bit like what fast food looks like in commercials. You get a McDonald's commercial and there's a Big Mac and it looks like it's about a foot tall. All the layers are nice and evenly separated. The burger patty looks like massive. And then you actually roll through the drive through window at McDonald's. You order a Big Mac. You get it wrapped up in its paper. You undo it. It's about two inches thick. Everything is all smushed together and it comes with a side of clogged arteries. Big promise. Oh, look at that. It looks amazing. Little payoff. It's just McDonald's. Big consequence. Clogged arteries. That is the way that sin operates. Sin never leads with the big consequence. Hey, do this and you could ruin your marriage. Sound good? Do this and you could tank your career. Sound appealing? Sin leads with the thing that speaks to our flesh. It leads with something inside of us that we would like to meet, that God has ultimately promised us that there is a way to flourish. But sin says you could take this shortcut, get the big payoff, and it will say nothing about the consequences. Then when you reach out and grab hold of that thing, you get little payoff and big unmentioned consequences. That's the pattern. And sin has been bearing that fruit since Genesis chapter 3. It has not changed one single bit. It's common for us to talk about consequences for sin. Like in Christian circles, we ask questions like, look, I know Jesus died on the cross and absorbed the punishment for my sin, but when I sin, do I get punished? Does God punish me for that? We don't often talk about the ways in which we're punished by our sin. That's typically how it works. Big promise, 
little payoff, big consequence as we're punished by our sin. It's baked into the way that the world works. We're tempted to deem something good that God has said is not good. We believe that there's a big promise associated with that. We reach out and we take hold of it. We get little payoff, and then we get the consequences of that. Shame or guilt that come with that thing. Consequences in our relationships or our jobs, a physical or an emotional pain that lingers longer than the pleasure that we sought. That has been, that root has been bearing fruit ever since the garden. Temptation never leads with its inevitable consequence. Temptation leads with an overselling of its promise. It follows with an under-delivering, and then in its wake comes a consequence that it never mentioned. Root number two. Sin fundamentally changes humanity's relationship with God. There are two immediately obvious rifts in the garden after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They sew fig leaves together in order to hide the fullness of their vulnerability from one another, and then they dive into the bushes in order to hide completely from God. There's a rift in the human relationship, there's, uh, or Adam and Eve's relationship, there's a rift in the human relationship with God. Those, those are immediately obvious. Prior to this, Adam and Eve had no reason to hide from one another or to hide from God. There was, there was no no purpose for that. If we take a closer look at the situation here, I, I think Genesis chapter 3 actually paints this picture in such, such striking clarity. And so I want to walk through three aspects of this. We're told in verse 8, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. God walking. What's going on with that? There are two really popular schools of thought as it revolves around that phrase. One is that God walking is an anthropomorphism. It's just ascribing a human quality to God so that our brains can understand what's happening. God's moving through the garden in some form or fashion. Adam and Eve hear the rustling in the trees and they understand that God is moving there. And in order for our brains to understand it, it gets put into human sort of terms that God is walking through the garden. The connotation of the word walking there is that this is something God always does. He regularly does this, moves through the garden in this way, and the best way for your human brain to understand it is he's walking. That's option number one. School of thought number two is that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus physically walking in the garden there with Adam and Eve. It's common and not unappropriate or inappropriate biblically to take from this vantage point and read back into the Old Testament, New Testament realities. And one of those is that in the Old Testament, there are pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus. A couple examples. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace and there's a fourth person in there dancing with them and not being burned up, that's pre-incarnate Christ present with them there in the furnace. When the Old Testament talks about the angel of the Lord, that is the Old Testament's way of talking about pre-incarnate Jesus. And so school of thought number two is there's God, the Son, walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. The thought is that 
God, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, always uh, is present in its natural form. So the Spirit is always the Spirit, the Father is always Father, and the Son is always bodily the Son. And so in the Old Testament, if God is pictured as walking, that has to be the Son. It can't be the Spirit because the Spirit is Spirit. It can't be the Father because the Father is Father. So if God is walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, that has to be the Son. There's school of thought number two. So what do we have here? Great question. I have no idea. Put it on your list for when you get to the heavenly Q&A session that will last in eternity because we've got a lot of questions. I recently heard a quote from uh, Pastor Erwin McManus. He said, if, if you come across a system of thought that claims that God can be completely understood, what you probably have is God being utterly misrepresented. There's mystery associated here. Is God physically there, present, walking, or is this a way for our brains to understand that he's moving through the garden? Fantastic question. There's some mystery that surrounds that. At the time of the evening breeze, your text might render that in the cool of the evening or the cool of the day. The intent here is not to give you a clock reading so that you know that this happened and it was like 6.30 p.m., when God was moving through the garden. The intent, again, is that this is a thing that God normally does. He's present there in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he's moving through just like he would always move through. That's the key. Only this time, something is different because Adam and Eve are not also walking in the garden. They're hiding in the trees. The phrase, walked with God, is something that appears about three different people in the book of Genesis. It would be like a shorthand way of Genesis saying that so-and-so was righteous. It happens the first time in Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 and 24. It's a genealogical list of names and ages, and you're told twice that Enoch walked with God. The second time it happens is in Genesis chapter 6. It's about Noah. It's why he stands out among his generation. We're told that he was righteous and blameless, and he walked with the Lord. And then it's said about Abraham, and it's actually said about Abraham in three different places. In Genesis 17, Abraham is receiving the covenant sign of circumcision, and God says to Abraham, I am the Lord Almighty. Walk in my presence and be blameless. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sends one of his servants to find a wife for his son. The servant is sent to a man named Laban. The servant and Laban are having a conversation back and forth, and this is confusing, but in the midst of that conversation, the servant quotes something that Abraham said previously. Got it? What the servant quotes is that Abraham says, the Lord before whom I have walked. And then in Genesis chapter 48, at the end of Jacob's life, he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh, two of his grandsons. And in the middle of that blessing, he says, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, may he bless these boys. The phrase walked with God. It's a phrase that Israelite people would have understand was like shorthand for saying that person was righteous. They were blameless in relationship with the Lord. Remember, Genesis is written down years later. It's written down most likely at Mount Sinai as the Israelites are camped out there after the Exodus event. They're receiving the law, and they also get the written form of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they would have understood that to walk with God was to say that one was righteous. So here in the Genesis account in chapter 3, God is walking through the garden 
at the time of the evening breeze like he always does, and Adam and Eve are not walking with him. That's the key. They're hiding in the bushes. The relationship between Adam and Eve and God has fundamentally changed. They're hiding. God is doing what God has always done. Adam and Eve, they've done something out of the ordinary. Eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now they're not walking with God at the time of the evening breeze. They're hiding. Kenneth Matthews says it this way. It is part of the sad deception of sin that the man and the woman who wanted so much to be like God rather than obtaining the stature of deity are afraid to even commune with him. Sin overpromised and underdelivered. Those roots have been bearing fruit and it completely and fundamentally changed humanity's relationship with God. Those roots still bear fruit. Third, <clears throat> sin distorts our view of God's gifts and his grace. Watch the conversation that plays out. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he, that's God, asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, and this is classic human nature. The woman Catch the irony of this. Adam and Eve want autonomy. We want to make our own decisions, decide what is good and is bad, what is right and what is wrong. That tree looks good. We're going to eat from it even though God told us not to. And as soon as Adam is called to account, what does he do? It's not my fault. I didn't make that. Her. This isn't about me, God. This is about Eve but it runs even deeper than that. The woman you gave me, who does he really pain, pin the blame on? Well, the woman that you decided to put here, God, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. Like That's the little part. The big part is this woman, just go back to chapter two. This woman that was such a wonderful gift from God, that God gives to Adam so that she could be the helper, the aid, his succor, remember. The woman that caused Adam to burst out into poetry. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Oh, finally, here is one who is like me. Now she's reason for not an outburst of poetry, but like an outburst of spite. Well, the woman that you put here, God is to blame. The one that you gave me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. You should have never done that, God. It was a mistake right from the start. We wouldn't be in this mess, God, if you hadn't put the woman here. You put the woman here, and now look, I'm naked and hiding. Adam takes God's goodness and gift and he looks at both the gift and the giver with like a sort of disdain. But it's not over there because Eve doesn't do much better. The Lord, verse 13, so the Lord God asked the woman, say what? What is this you have done? And Eve says, the serpent 
Now, she doesn't go so far as to say the serpent that you put here, but go back to the way that Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 introduced the serpent to us. Now, the serpent, who was the craftiest of all the animals that the Lord God had made, and Eve says, the serpent, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. For Adam, God is responsible because he created Eve. For Eve, God is responsible because he created the creatures. And God's good gifts have become liabilities. Not because of God, but because of hum- humanity's like, inbred will to seek somewhere else to offload the blame for our rebellious autonomy. We want to stand completely on our own until it's time to stand completely on our own. Then we want to make sure there's either somebody else there with us or someone else to stand in our place entirely. A quick note, that root is still bearing fruit. And you you even see it subtly in like theological conversations about Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Well, if God knew that humanity was going to sin, why did he put the tree there? Well, the tree that you put there, God, I was having a conversation with a friend once a number of years ago, and life was in a very difficult place for him as a result of sin, and he is right in the thick of his emotions about that. And in the back and forth, he kind of offhandedly says, well, if God is sovereign and all-powerful, and he knew that this was going to happen. Why did he even create the life circumstances in which I did this? Well, the woman that you put here, the serpent, the Bible has a lot to say about the nature and the consequences of sin, but at the very beginning, we see that sin overpromises and underdelivers that it fundamentally changes humanity's relationship with God and that it distorts our view of God's good, good gifts. And those roots are bearing the same fruit today. The roots of sin and grace in the Garden of Eden provide a pattern for both humanity's action and God's redemption throughout history. So we're gonna take another spin through the passage here. Because right from the outset, God's grace explodes across the page. The thing that typically gets all of the press in terms of God's grace and his redemptive activity in Genesis chapter 3 is that before Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, God will kill an animal and make clothing for them. But there's evidence of God's grace before we ever get to Genesis 3.21. Number one, God has not ceded control of his creation We noted this already, but God continues to do what God has always done. He's still present and active in the place that he created. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Note, sin enters the picture here, and God does not say, figure it out yourselves. I told you not to do that. Now you deal with it. Sin enters into the world. And God remains present and active. What an amazing grace. 
sin was not original. This is, this is really worth pointing out and just reminding ourselves of. Sin's not original. Sin is not ultimate. And sin does not rule the day. That's because God is still king and he is still ruling and reigning. And you get the picture of that immediately after sin happens in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve take the fruit, they eat it, they realize they're naked, they sow fig leaves, they dive into the bushes. Why? Because God is still present. And he's still active. And he's still ruling and he's still reigning. The world that God created, remember, it wasn't just good, it was perfect. When Jesus returns, he's not going to restore the world just to being good, he's going to restore it to a place of perfection. And it's, it's worth keeping that in mind because it's a distinct part of a Christian worldview that we have to offer when we come to conversations about like how this place ought to function. We have like a three-act view of human history. Perfection at creation, fall when sin enters, and then perfection when God comes back to restore everything back to the original. The dominant worldview of of our time is that, like, this is as good as it gets. It's always been this. It will always be this. So we might as well just try to make it as good as we can. That's not the Christian perspective. It was perfect. Sin now is here, but it's not ultimate. It's not original. It does not rule the day. God does. He is still king, and he will make everything perfect again. And the reason, follower of Jesus, why you get saved and you remain here is because the kingdom of God ought to be bringing realities of his perfect rule and reign that is without spot or blemish to bear on this broken place right now. So that what we have to hold out is a foretaste of what is yet to come. Not just this place is broken and let's do the best we can with it. No, there is a perfect king who ruled at the beginning, who rules now, who will rule at the end, and we can bring realities of his kingdom to bear on this place right now. Because he's king. You keep hope alive. You keep hope alive. Why? Because we know what's coming. And in case we can't like wrap our head around what perfection would be like in the future, go back and read the beginning. That's how it was originally. Sin is a very unwelcome disruptor here in the middle, but it's not ultimate. I, I have a sibling. She's older than me. If you have siblings, this will make sense to you. There came a point in your life growing up where your parents decided that the older sibling was old enough to keep control of things while they left, so you didn't need a babysitter anymore. The older, older one was like mature enough, old enough, responsible enough to keep the younger one in check. That's how it works. Mom and dad left. It didn't take very many times for older sibling to realize I have no control over the tornado that is my younger sibling. And at some point, older sibling throws their hands up in the air and says, mom and dad are coming home. And I'm going to tell. And that's my only recourse right now. We often treat like the good news of the hope of Jesus returning as this like blunt force object where we look at the world around us and it's broken and it's full of sin and we say, look y'all, he's coming back and he knows and you're gonna get it 
When in reality, it's, hey, good news, broken people. It hasn't always been this way. It will not always be this way. And you don't have to live stuck in it anymore. There's hope. Because the king has not ceded control over his creation despite the inbreaking of sin. No, he still rules and he still reigns and you can have something better and one day he's coming back. One day he's coming back. That root of grace gets full bloom when Jesus, God, comes into the world, walks around in it displays himself to be king, is killed on the cross, buried in a tomb, resurrects and says, hey, one day I'm coming back. That's good fruit from the root of God's grace present immediately in Genesis chapter three. Number two, Adam and Eve live in the immediate aftermath of their sin. Then the man and his wife heard, well, that's incredible, they were supposed to die. Eat that tree, you will, or eat the fruit from that tree, you will certainly die. They eat that fruit and their eyes are opened when what should have happened is that their hearts should have stopped. That is God's grace. Such would have been the just action of a holy and a righteous God for Adam and Eve to have just dropped dead. It's still a gift of God's grace today. In spite of our sin, we live. The wages of sin is death. And yet here we all are, steeped in sin, living and breathing. That's a gift of God's grace. Roots in the garden, still bearing fruit today. Number three, God draws Adam and Eve out in conversation rather than just driving them out of the garden. God could have skipped all the pleasantries here. They eat from the tree. They dive into the bushes to hide, and God does not say, hey, come out, let's have a conversation. He just says, get out. Be gone. Instead, he has a conversation. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to? Eve, what is what he says true? He draws them out in conversation. And what's going on there? Like, God doesn't need answers to these questions. He already knows. Instead, remember, Genesis 1, God is this big and transcendent God. Genesis 2, he's as intimately personal as he is infinitely transcendent. And now here he is in Genesis chapter 3, being a God of relationship. He is Yahweh Elohim, Lord God, the God of covenantal promise. And here he is in chapter three, in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, acting according to his nature, which is relational. He goes toward them in their sin. He's gracious. We're gonna find out that he's just. And so their sin does come with consequences. The root of that grace grows to its full fruit when Jesus enters into the world to seek and save the lost. I'm going to draw my people out. Just as a side note here, 
God, in this conversation, offers Adam and Eve at least the opportunity to come clean. Repent. Own the thing that you just did. He's a God of relationship. They, presumably from the bushes, are just shouting their reasonings and rationalizations. It looked good for food. The woman you put here, she gave it to me. Repentance and relationship, that's what God is offering. Reasons and rationalizations, that's what Adam and Eve are shouting from the trees. Look, follower of Jesus, for however long you've been walking with Christ, We all know that there are moments where we get caught red-handed in our sin. And in that moment, there is always the opportunity for repentance and relationship. But our default is reasonings and rationalizations. Sometimes I'll do it with my journal open. Here, God. That's why I did that. Certainly, you'll understand. There were underlying circumstances that made that particular sin good. I was hungry and the Big Mac looked good. And now that it underdelivered, also God, I'm a little mad at you for my current state of things because the consequences were more than I bargained for. Look, just take a step back and try to be logical, which is the antithesis of sin. If God is who he says he is, he already knows your reasons and is not, does not need you to offer them. And if God is who he says he is and sin is what he says it is, you will never rationalize an irrational act. So just skip all the pretense and get to the repentance because you've got the full benefit of relationship thanks to Jesus. He does not need your reasons. He does not need your rationalization brother or sister in Christ, just get on your knees and repent. Walk a different way. Own what you've done. Lead with, I ate, period. And let that be what it is. Number four, God patiently listens to Adam and Eve's self-justification. Where are you? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman, get out, just go. Could have ended right there. Well, the woman that you put, stop it, get. Eve, you want to do any better? The serpent, you leave too. The Old Testament has a word for the patience of God. The word is that God is long-suffering. You want the first evidence of God long-suffering? He sits through this conversation. He he long-suffers with Adam and Eve while they offer their reasons and rationalizations. He's patient, and he's patient with us. Not wishing that any should perish. He bears with us in our sin. In fact, in the patience of God, he turns the very place of sin into a place 
of redemption. And I'll explain to you what I mean if you want to grab your cups now. You did not pull into the church this morning looking for tree theology, but buckle up because here we go. Trees are a really big deal in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that there are trees of every kind which bear, their, which bear fruit according to their seeds. We're told that Adam and Eve can eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, God points out two trees in specific. They're in the middle of the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he makes a covenant with Adam and Eve on the basis of the fruit of those trees. Don't eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will continue to have access to the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve sees that the fruit is good for food. It's delightful to the eye. It's desirable for obtaining wisdom. She takes the fruit from that tree, and she eats it. Then her, she hands it to Adam, and he eats it. They sow fig tree leaves together in order to cover themselves, and they dive into the trees to hide from God. They're just swimming in tree stuff in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And now, because they ate the tree from, or the fruit from one particular tree, they, they're going to suffer the just consequences for their sin. Death is going to enter into the world. They're going to be kicked out of the garden, and God is going to block the way to the tree of life. Deuteronomy will go on to say that cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. How has God redeemed that for you? Because the basis of the new covenant is all about the fruit of one tree. The tree where Jesus Christ hung in our place. Body broken, blood poured out, that now the fruit of that tree is not what brings you death, but brings you life. Adam and Eve, all of their shame, dive into the trees in order to hide. And now God says, you come to this tree with all of your shame and all of your sin and you lay it before me wide open and exposed and I will give you life instead of death. Last week, we talked about taking communion and how this should be a reminder every time we do it that Eve took and she ate and death came into the world. But now brother and sister in Christ, the basis of the new covenant is Jesus says that you can take and eat and you will have life instead of death. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the body and the blood of Christ. The fruit of a tree that brings life instead of the just consequences of death that we deserve. The body of Christ given for you. Eat in remembrance of him. This is the blood of Christ, poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Drink in remembrance of him. The roots of sin and grace in the Garden of Eden provide a pattern for both humanity's action and God's redemption throughout history. Even the place of Adam and Eve's greatest failure God redeems into a place of humanity's great salvation. Adam and Eve fell by eating the fruit of one tree, and humanity is now saved because of the fruit of one tree, the cross at Calvary. Amen.
Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's worship. If you're able, stand, join us in song.